0: Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today's discussion will be about something that's not just in the news, but about the news. Senior
1: producer Dina El Sayed explains. When fake news is allowed to snowball, it often has serious consequences. Take what happened on January 6th. Bezos reports that the American presidential election had been stolen from Donald Trump, led a mob made up of his supporters to attack the U.S. Capitol that day while lawmakers certified the vote. But the lies didn't stop there, even after Trump was impeached for inciting the crowd.
2: There are lots of opinions about the integrity of the election, the irregularities of mail-in voting, of election voting machines and voting software. One of the companies is Smartmatic.
1: That's Lou Dobbs, who hosted a popular Fox Business News talk show. A multi-billion dollar lawsuit by Smartmatic finally led the network to remove Dobbs from his primetime pulpit. But impeachments and lawsuits aren't enough to stop fake news, which is never more than a click or two away on our devices take this segment posted last week on G News about PCR tests for the coronavirus being secret vaccines. But this shows that they have nanoparticles that are actually on the ends of the Q tips that they're putting in there that can get into your brain. They can be hooked up to the cloud. So they they are already vaccinating you with the test. You are actually being vaccinated and implanted with nanoparticles. Genius, which is rife with conspiracy theories, is run by a Chinese billionaire. German public broadcaster ZDF reports he may be trying to expand his reach in Germany. Experts say the danger isn't that people disagree, but that there no longer is a basis of shared facts. It's that level playing field that groups like the one founded by Juliana von Ghebert-Bismarck hope to restore. Her Brussels-based nonprofit is called Lie Detectors, which teaches students as young as 10 in Austria, Belgium, and Germany how to identify fake news
3: so many of these platforms are just not it's not possible to moderate them and if you try and delete what's out there you're just playing a game of whack-a-mole you know you cannot delete your way out of this problem you can create a you know healthy skepticism in the minds of people a
1: at bismarck adds that outright banning of fake news is more problematic such laws she explains can end up a perfect cloak for censorship that was
0: senior producer dina el sayed Joining me via Zoom to discuss fake news and whether or how it should be controlled are Lie Detectors founder Juliane von Repert bismarck who you just heard in the story, Lisa Dittmer, who is Reporters Without Borders advocacy officer in Berlin for Internet freedom, Damaso Reyes, a multimedia journalist and founder of Clarify Media, which offers news literacy training, And Jacob Mushingama, founder of Eusticia, a think tank in Copenhagen addressing human rights, freedom of speech, and the rule of law. Welcome everyone.
4: Hello. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Damaso, let's start with a definition of fake news. These days, it seems to be about a lot more than false or made up reports. I mean, you have politicians like Trump who use it to dismiss uncomfortable questions or stories and the far right using it to discredit mainstream media or opponents. So what is fake news?
2: Fake news is uh, a term which is almost lost all meaning based on I think some of the very valid points you've brought up. But specifically, fake news is a specific type or subtype of disinformation in which misinformation poses as legitimate standards-based news. So it tries to impersonate, uh, say, a trusted news source to get you to believe the piece of misinformation or disinformation that the person or the entity is trying to propagate misinformation, disinformation is a much larger category that takes many different forms. Uh, So I think at this point, we should stop using the term fake news pretty much altogether and really start talking about misinformation and disinformation and helping people to understand that disinformation and misinformation really take on a bunch of different guises and help people to recognize what those guises are. Because Uh, misinformation doesn't just appear as uh, impersonating legitimate news sources.
0: Lisa, what is the impact of the coronavirus on the amount of fake news or disinformation, as DeMasso calls it, that we see or hear?
4: I think over the past year, we've seen a massive proliferation, a massive growth in disinformation. And people have found it very hard to distinguish between real news, obviously, which is all the more difficult at a time when what is real and what is right is actually evolving, as even scientists obviously are debating over facts, are debating over the right approaches to this crisis, and that makes it all the more difficult, because if everything is constantly evolving, it's hard to keep track, and it's much easier for actors who are deliberately misrepresenting facts, or who are deliberately spreading lies to get their voices out there when there's already a sort of misinformation,
0: disinformation, chaos. Juliana, what is the impact of the evolving definition of fake news or misinformation and the coronavirus on top of it? I mean, what has that done to the media landscape in 2020, 2021?
3: how it's affected the media landscape has been a very, very interesting thing that we have found So lie detectors um, works to promote um, democracy by sending journalists into classrooms to work with young people and empower them to tell the difference between disinformation, misinformation, actual facts, and to explore what lies in between. And what we found during the Corona crisis, when we started sending the journalists out into the classrooms digitally via video conferencing, was that um, young people actually started consuming traditional media much more. They were stuck at home during last year's lockdown and a lot of them were actually looking at um, a traditional TV, um, actually seeing newspapers and things like that together with their parents much more than they had told us that they'd previously been doing. But at the same time they continued consulting their favourite platforms like Snapchat and TikTok and Twitch and Discord, all of these largely unmoderated um, websites and platforms for information on how to navigate the COVID information environment. And as Lisa was saying, one of the amazing things about COVID is that uh, this is a perfect example of the disinformation that is traveling around the coronavirus is one of the issues of what can happen when disinformation travels completely unchecked apparently non-political, but actually working to undermine trust in those institutions that are actually designed to protect us, um, and in the end really undermining the ability of people to make informed decisions, and with that undermining the democratic process, which if you think about it, is at the basis of informed decision making.
0: So, Jacob, I mean, you're you're the non-journalist in the group, if you will. You're a lawyer promoting free speech and concerned about government bans on free speech. So I'm wondering who you think should be setting the parameters, determining what fake news is or what disinformation is and what isn't.
5: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when it comes to the public debate in, in general, I don't think we should have a ministry of truth or a reality czar, as, as some have suggested in, in the U.S. I saw that in The New York Times. But it's obviously important to have an information ecosystem where you have various institutions and actors that seek to determine or at least approach the truth. And that's why we we need uh, professional media institutions, journalistic standards, academics, social scientists, and so on. There's a lot of doom and gloom about disinformation, misinformation. Some of it warranted, some of it actually When you look at the data has been overblown so for instance when we look at the amount of misinformation and disinformation in the 2016 presidential election it was actually much less than originally reported but it's interesting to see that in general if you ask people you know whether they trust information from traditional media or social media they generally tend to trust information from traditional media more than than information on social media i think that's a healthy sign that people actually have more confidence in information that is being vetted but i think you know we have to accept the fact that disinformation and misinformation has been around for as long as human beings have been around it's not something that we can get rid of so it's a basic factor of human life and because we live in a new communication environment, um, we'll have to, you know, find ways to to mitigate the harms of the fact that everyone has an access to easily spread and disseminate disinformation. But I think it's also important to look at the benefits, you know, has social media and the internet been a net benefit or a net harm during the corona crisis? I would strongly think that it's been a net benefit. And the heavy-handed approach by the Chinese state, for instance, in censoring Uh, information about the coronavirus, clamping down on on whistleblowers, did much more harm than if they had been uh, open about it. And then, of course, due to the coronavirus, a number of countries around the world have actually adopted draconian um, laws against disinformation that target political dissenters uh, and so on. So I think it's incredibly important that democracies try to take seriously the threat from mis- and disinformation, but without undermining Uh, freedom of expression, both on and offline.
0: Well, let me ask my other guests here for a moment. Who do you think should be setting the parameters for what is fake news and what is not? I mean, should it be something that the media does? Since we're trained journalists, this is something that, you know, we went to school to learn. Should it be governments? Should it be platforms like Facebook? Uh, Juliana, you want to say something about that?
3: I mean... Obviously, that is an area where you have to tread incredibly cautiously because once you start regulating uh, what is fake news and what is not fake news, you're getting right into censorship. And let's not forget that there are many parts of the world where um, freedom of the press is really not a given and basic freedoms are not a given. Um, We're sitting here in Europe and we have to be really careful when we're talking about these things that we're not giving some kind of signal to the world that this is an okay way of going about it. There are many other ways of tackling disinformation that do not require censorship. If you're going to be tackling it from a supply perspective, and by that I mean if you're going to be tackling the drivers of disinformation, which is an absolutely crucial thing to do and which various regulators in the EU are currently trying to get their teeth into, you can be following the money it's very simple you know there's a reason why um, disinformation is also called you know the outrage economy um, the attention economy there are vast amounts of money at stake when we're talking about disinformation there is screen engagement um, there is the advertising revenue model of the large platforms like Facebook like Google these are things that really need to be looked at there are antitrust tools at the disposal for instance of EU regulators that really need to be put in place we need to be thinking in terms of natural monopoly And how to harness them, how to designate various platforms as gatekeepers and regulate them accordingly without ever having to step into that form of what is real news and what isn't fake news. On the other side, from the demand perspective, what we call for is really a wholesale rethink of what education should do and what literacy is, and recognizing that the OECD's PISA department, for instance, should add this basic critical literacy to the basic rankings gauges of the school rankings that are called the PISA rankings.
0: Damaso, do you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I think I agree with my fellow guests. Um, I think having the government set those standards is an actual very slippery slope. Um, And we've seen, quote, fake news laws being passed um, in a few countries around the world. And, you know, very quickly, uh, opposition politicians saying that those laws are being used against them. So I don't think it's a good idea. I also don't think it's particularly effective. Um, I also think obviously the social media platforms have a huge role to play. Every social media platform sets its own standards currently. And we've seen, especially in the wake of the attack on the U.S. Capitol, how those standards can quickly shift. Facebook and Twitter saying essentially certain politicians or national leaders can essentially flout and break their rules to them very quickly enforcing and then banning those same leaders when a social line was crossed. So I think uh, as citizens, we have to hold social media companies more accountable and ask them to do more to fight the spread of disinformation and to be more active on that. But having government regulation is really a very blunt and from my perspective, an ineffective tool. I would like to make a very quick comment to something that Jacob said about uh, the amount of uh, misinformation or disinformation that was spread during the 2016 election, I actually feel kind of the opposite of him. I feel like uh, the initial reporting did not reflect how much mis- and disinformation uh, spread. We certainly know now that millions, if not tens of millions of Americans were exposed to targeted disinformation during the 2016 election. And we also know that in certain states, the margin of victory uh, by President Trump was in the tens of thousands. So when we look at it from that perspective, even a relatively small amount of disinformation has the possibility of impacting uh, the choices that voters make. Now, in the case of the 2016 election, we don't have concrete data to say that this person saw a piece of misinformation and changed their vote. But we can speculate and we can think about if 10 million or 50 million people were potentially exposed or we know were exposed through uh, the information we now have from Facebook. And in these states, the margin of victory was 50,000 votes or 20,000 votes. That should give us a certain amount of concern. And one of the things I think we've learned over the past uh, four or five years is that uh, disinformation and misinformation, especially when it's well targeted can really have an outsized impact in terms of people taking violent and dangerous action and there's certainly been enough reporting around the world, not just in the United States but in Europe in in Africa and Asia of people being groups being targeted by misinformation and then a smaller subset of that targeted population taking, dangerous and violent actions, whether it's targeting ethnic minorities, whether it's targeting religious groups, whether it's, uh, you know, COVID-based misinformation. And that's something that it um, should really, really concern us. And we have to try to figure out a way of dealing with that while still maintaining freedom of the press, while still maintaining freedom of speech. And it's a, as some of our other guests have noted, it's a very difficult tightrope to walk.
0: Lisa, I'm going to tap into your expertise for a moment and ask you what role algorithms play in the proliferation of fake news on the internet.
4: I think maybe linking this actually to what Damaso was just saying, obviously we know that disinformation is massively harmful. At the same time, we know actually very little. The data is still very spurious. Uh, the research at this stage, obviously, is still very divided. And I think it's still at the early stages. So we talk about a phenomenon that actually we don't really understand all that well. There's massive debate about the effects of filter bubbles and how likely it really is that people tap into those. So that makes it all the more difficult to react to an issue that we don't really understand. And uh, this becomes all the more evident, I think, when we talk about social media platforms, because the deciders, the people who already are reacting to this phenomenon and who are setting the guidelines or setting the boundaries of what's acceptable and what's doable online, they don't base this on anything really other than their corporate image. And it's sunk in that they carry a social responsibility, but what we're seeing right now isn't an appropriate reaction to that. So there's still a great unwillingness to divulge the sort of uh, the data and accept the sort of transparency obligations that would really be necessary to understand how social media platforms are having an impact on our societies, on our understanding of uh, information, on our consumption of the media. And obviously, algorithms play a massive role in this. So obviously, social media plays a massive role now. um, And it's really a select number of people high up in the ranks of a few corporate platforms that have a disproportionate amount of influence over the sort of media that we consume and the information that we see. And so obviously all of this should be based on on current research and on appropriate data for how to react. But really what we are seeing is that as platforms are thinking about these issues, they obviously have massive conflicts of interest. So Facebook, for example, did in fact ask its own people to look into its algorithms and its effects on polarization, and they shelved their own research. The very same effects in changing their algorithms that would uh, lead to a decrease in polarization also led to a decrease in time spent on their platform. And that was a price they weren't willing to pay. So they do, to some extent, willingly accept, obviously, the massive negative uh, social influence that they have. Because their overarching interest is selling ads and making money off our data and hyper-personalization. And I think as long as we don't talk about those business models and the social price we pay for them, we're not really going to um, find good solutions to this massive societal problem that will stay around for a good while.
0: Jacob, Yuliana mentioned earlier about the money trail that allows for the proliferation of fake news. And I'm wondering, I, I know that you have concerns, and actually everyone expressed concerns about government bans or government restrictions uh, being perceived as censorship. But I'm wondering, do you think the government should be going after? these money trails more? I mean, is there a, a legal question in doing that? Or is that a way that you think fake news could be gotten more under control, at least from a government level?
5: I think that depends on on what you have in mind. If the government says that people or uh, outlets whose uh, opinions we don't like, uh, we should somehow penalize them Uh, financially, then I would be concerned about that. But on the other hand, there are other things that you could do. Uh, It could be competition law, for instance, uh, trying to have a less centralized uh, social media environment. I often get misty-eyed when I think about the good old days of the blogosphere, where we had a much more um, sort of horizontal and decentralized um, internet. Whereas now through a process of platformization, we have these huge platforms where decisions about content moderation will have huge impact. So laws trying to sort of counteract this massive centralization of huge tech companies could be one aspect of looking at the money. Another thing could be you know, looking into data sort of we've already touched upon the business model. So is there uh, more that could be done so that these uh, platforms are not so reliant on getting our personal data that then allows them to target us with highly charged uh, information. That could be something else because that doesn't go to the content. What I'm specifically worried about is, you know, laws that try to target specific types of content. And I think, you know, actually the US is a good example. There's a lot of backlash against the First Amendment because it's sort of an outlier in the protection it affords to free speech. But if you look at donald trump and and his campaign they have launched a whole uh, number of lawsuits against various media outlets uh, and others who have criticized uh, trump and many of these have sort of been thrown out of court because there's a strong protection of free speech and and you know if you were, to say something, even if it's not true about the president, it really has to be really egregious for a media outlet to be uh, sued successfully. And that obviously also works to the benefit of those who actually spread disinformation. But with free speech, you can't just say, well, we want all the benefits, but none of the costs and harms. That is unrealistic. So we have to be clear-eyed about the harms and then try to mitigate them in ways that do not touch uh, so much directly on content through what would uh, seem more like censorship.
0: We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about fake news and efforts underway to curb it. Stay tuned. I'm Soraya Sarhadi nelson the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El-Sayed, the senior producer. Each week, we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard-hitting topic.
1: If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on
0: grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, please click on the Donate button at CommonGroundBerlin.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to Common Ground. I'm Soraya Serhati-Nelson, and my guests are Lisa Dittmer of Reporters Without Borders, Juliana von Reppert-Bismarck of Lie Detectors, Damaso Reyes of Clarify Media, and Jacob Mushingama of Justitia. We're talking about fighting fake news, and I'd like to delve a little bit more into efforts that are underway to do so, and we'll start with Lisa. Tell us a little more about the Journalism Trust Initiative,
4: Reporters Without Borders started thinking about this issue of disinformation and the larger question, the larger societal question that has come up about the differentiation between trustworthy media and everything else that's sort of on the internet and now becoming more and more influential. And what we tried or our response to this whole debate was... Let's not focus just on the harmful content, let's focus on how we can promote trustworthy information, how we can reinstate faith in the media at large, and how we can make it easier for platforms, for example, to differentiate between what is trustworthy information and what isn't. So the Journalism Trust Initiative, which is led by RSF, is uh, a project that has developed standards, accepted by a large amount of actors from civil society, from the media, also from government actors, who've evolved criteria for what can be understood as trustworthy information, for what makes professional journalism independent and free and part of um, the larger goal of press freedom. So things such as proper fact-checking, Or basic standards for accuracy. And this isn't just about big media or big media outlets. This is also about giving a set of goals for smaller actors. So, whether this is a blogger from Syria, or this is a photographer who's doing this sort of part time and is trying to document war crimes. So, to just give an understanding, obviously, as RSF, we've been working in this uh, area for a long while, and it's been always hard to Make a cutoff point for what constitutes journalism and what constitutes trustworthy journalism in this day and age. And this is an attempt to have a set of transparent criteria accepted by a large amount of actors that sort of gives an orientation in the first place for what constitutes trustworthy information and that can then be used to understand, for example, for Facebook, not just to promote and uprank media based on business interests or based on corporations that are easy to engage in, but to have a set of transparent standards for promoting and upranking within algorithms, for example, media outlets, no matter what their size, who engage in professional journalism that furthers our understanding of the world. and. Um, I think that's one approach because we talk so much in politics now about content removal, about harmful uh, disinformation, about illegal content, but what we should also focus on is what's the sort of content that we want to see and how can we promote that? How can we promote media literacy? Um, How can we promote the positive sides? Because I think the more you talk about the negative sides of the internet, you forget that obviously a very large majority of people are interested in getting trustworthy information and spreading that. And so I think we should also talk more about constructive solutions rather than just about ways to censor, ways to take down content that we think might be harmful.
0: But are news organizations not just in the same country, but in different countries of different sizes, as you mentioned, are they open to learning from each other or to having the same standard in terms of dealing with fake news?
4: Definitely. I think the media is very aware that there's a crisis, not just of trust in government institutions or science, but also in the media itself. And to some extent, obviously, that has something to do with a small amount of media outlets, not conforming to any standards and engaging in the very same business models that we criticize when it comes to larger platforms. So clickbait that's sensational and not based on any fact checking standards, but it's just, um, produce to sell attention and to sell ads successfully and so i think there's a large interest and an important emerging debate within the media itself for how to develop those standards for how to make people uh, see the value in trusted media outlets and obviously that's connected once again also within the media to financing trustworthy information
0: Yuliana, your organization focuses on younger minds. Why is that more effective than, let's say, training their parents or teachers or politicians for that
3: matter? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. And it's absolutely true that everybody could do with a little bit of a critical mind when we're navigating our incredibly intense information universe. Um, the reason why we work with young people, we work with children aged 10 to 15 specifically, and with their teachers is because not many other people do. And we really feel that and see that these kids, even though their media consumption is not as visible and the extent to which they share um, potentially harmful and fake let's call it um information cannot be measured because they navigate an encrypted universe they navigate a very visual universe they're not on twitter They're not on Facebook. They are on Instagram, on YouTube, on TikTok, on all of these visual and often encrypted platforms where they are entirely by themselves. And what we've seen um, from what they tell us, from the disinformation that they forward to us and ask us to help them unravel, that the disinformation does travel among them. So we've seen instances of QAnon um, disinformation traveling on Instagram in Germany in very well protected households and, and schoolyards. And the amazing thing about working with kids is that it's very, very, um, the reactions are very extreme. You know, first of all, they're not used at all to coming face to face with a journalist. Very many of them, consume a lot of information but few of them have ever really thought about what makes a piece of professional journalism what differentiates that from a blog or any kind of Instagram post and so we find that particularly with the younger people when we come with actual solutions when we come with real tools when we say to them you know you're not actually helpless in the face of this disinformation which they do worry about they react very very well I mean you you mustn't forget the kind of like very biological function that we have which is you know on the On one hand, we really don't want to be told that what we believe is incorrect, which is why fact checking can be so difficult. But at the same time, we do actually want to know what's true and we don't want to be led up the garden path. And so we work with children and we work in very small groups. So we go into classrooms with no more than 25, maximum 30 kids. Um, the reason why we do it in that small format is also for the teachers to hear what the kids have to say and that's incredibly interesting because we have heard from teachers that 80% of them tell us they know how important this issue is they worry they write to us we receive emails from teachers saying please help us the kids in my class are all going to right-wing concerts and coming back this is pre-corona when they were still going to concerts but you know they worry about the universes which the kids uh, navigate and they don't know how how to deal with it. They say, please come, but less than 40% of them tell us that they have ever broached the subject themselves in the classroom for various reasons, they feel under-resourced, they feel unprepared, they're not on Snapchat, they don't understand these different platforms and they feel um, unable to discuss it. Now, when we come in, we do it in a very playful way, we do it in a way that is, you know, deals with um, examples that aren't immediately political, you know, that are relevant, that are relevant to the platforms on which the kids circulate. And this is really designed to get the teachers to realize wow, that is an issue, you know, my 10-year-old kids are all on five to six different platforms already, and to see that they can actually address this in a very simple way, and that it is also relevant not just to some IT class, but actually it's relevant in, you know, in literature, in maths, we've been in biology lessons, and once we've created those multiplier effects among the teachers, um, there's no end to what we can achieve.
0: Damaso, we've talked about training the audience, if you will. And obviously, uh, as somebody who's involved with news literacy training, you've been involved with that. I'm wondering about training mass media. Frankly, a lot of the clickbait and fake news that we see is actually spread by established news outlets, whether unwillingly or whether willingly.
2: That's a great point. I think that over the past 20 years, it's obviously been a very difficult time financially for news organizations and many have turned to things like branded and sponsored content and clickbait as a way to generate revenue uh in response to failing and, and falling advertising revenue. And disseminating this kind of information does erode the information ecosystem and does erode trust with our readers and our viewers and our listeners. And this is something that I think has to be addressed by mainstream news organizations. We have to find a better way to generate revenue in ways in which really engage our audience. Uh, I think the move towards membership and supporting newsrooms is growing. And I think it's becoming an effective replacement for some of this easy revenue. But I think in everything we do as journalists and as news organizations, we really have to examine are we helping The information ecosystem, are we putting out high-quality content that our readership can trust, or are we hurting the information ecosystem? I know for many news organizations, it's really been a matter of survival, but we can't destroy our environment in hopes of surviving for another day if then a year or two or 10 from now we've essentially destroyed the ecosystem and destroyed our ability to survive within it.
0: Jacob, I wanted to actually get you to talk about a law that is on the books uh, here in Germany. It's the Network Enforcement Act, or NetzDG, which holds platforms like Facebook accountable over hate speech and fake news. You've written that the measure is sometimes used as a justification by authoritarian leaders to impose censorship in their own countries. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit the link between these rules and use by other countries to sort of justify their own restrictions that they impose on their people.
5: Yeah, so the NetzDG doesn't actually ban any content. It says that certain speech that is already banned under the German criminal code must be removed uh, within 24 hours if it's manifestly unlawful. Otherwise, uh, platforms can risk uh, huge fines. That was an attempt to combat hate speech, especially after the migrant crisis, which saw a huge spike in hate speech and hate crimes in Germany and of course worries in general about hate speech online. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that a number of countries like Russia, like Turkey, like Venezuela, have explicitly referenced the next DG and adopted their own laws. Now, these laws uh, obviously go much further than the German ones, and they, they typically don't have the same rule of law guarantees that you have in Germany, where you have independent courts, where you have a constitution that protects free speech, uh, and so on. But what it does, it indirectly legitimizes uh, these countries' crackdown on dissent and crackdown on online freedom, because it becomes much more difficult for press freedom and and free speech organizations to criticize these laws when they can then say, well, this is actually an approach that was pioneered by Germany, which is uh, one of uh, Europe's leading democracies. So in that sense, you know, Germany has inadvertently helped, you could say, create a prototype that is being used for quite nefarious purposes around the world.
0: I have one last question that I'm going to put out to all of you, and I would ask for like a short answer if you can provide one. Is the war on fake news winnable? And we'll start with Lisa. Lisa.
4: That's a big question, but I'm an optimist and I would say disinformation is always going to be a part of this world, but I think we can limit the negative effects it has on society. But a large part of that will be better state regulation. And I think Jacob has just named some of the pitfalls of what can go wrong. So what we really need is a research-based approach. We need a more democratic approach, which limits uh, the influence on platforms on these policy decisions. And I think uh, civil society and actors such as the civil society and journalists uh, that we've seen represented here, they certainly have a role to play to inform better policy in this area.
0: So, Juliana, what about you? Do you think the war against fake news is winnable?
3: Um, Look, I think there's plenty of things you can do. As we've talked an awful lot about regulation, you know, um, there are ways of reining in the platforms. There are ways and there is a real need to rein in the monetizing of disinformation that is currently happening. That's going to take a long time. You know, let's not kid ourselves. There are an awful lot of interests and there's an awful lot of lobbying going on at the moment to make sure that doesn't happen very quickly. And in the meantime, we can train the critical muscle of our citizens. We can do it. You know, I I liked what um, Damaza was just saying about being able to recognize what different kinds of media are. You know, if you think about it, we used to walk up to our local newsagent and buy our newspaper. And we always were able to see, uh, you know, here was a broadsheet with quality information and here was the tabloid that was telling us about the alien landings you know and one day I might want to inform myself about an election that I might want to consider voting in and another day I might actually want to read about alien landings knowing full well it's not true what we need to do is we need to train the critical eye of people so that even though disinformation continues to exist we can tell apart what is true and what is false um, and decide when we're going to amuse ourselves with a little bit of disinformation that might be amusing to us might be entertaining to us but really just take the sting out of it and take the outrage out of it that it currently still engenders and yes I do think that we can do something about it there's an awful lot of really intelligent research going on on the uptake of conspiracy theories for instance there's an awful lot of science happening right now and I think we're going to see some really good results we certainly in the classrooms are already seeing that simply by putting question marks into the minds of the children and of the teachers, an awful lot of good things can happen.
0: Damaso, what say you?
2: So from my perspective, absolutely. I think that this is, if we think of this as a war or conflict, it is winnable um, between engaged journalists and engaged parents and engaged educators who use media literacy as a tool. I think we can fight and win this war against misinformation. Um, you know, we talk a lot about viral rumors, and I think the uh comparison is very apt and I think one thing we need to remember is that by and large we are the propagators of misinformation misinformation can't spread without us as users especially on social media spreading it so if we can recognize misinformation when we come across it and we can learn to not spread it we can have a huge impact on the ability of missing disinformation to spread and hopefully it will become a less attractive target or less attractive method for people who are trying to target people uh, to spread misinformation.
0: Jacob, what would you like to add, uh, if anything, to what your colleague said here?
2: Well, I'd like to uh, quote Aldous Huxley, and he said that
5: propaganda gives force and direction to the successive movements of popular feeling and desire, but it does not do much to create these movements. The propagandist is a man who canalizes an already existing stream in a land where there's no water he digs in vain and i think that quote points to the fact that there are also some underlying issues that need to be addressed for instance an, an erosion in trust in in the government and the media that are not simply to do with social media and the polarization that pre-existed uh, social media landscape and when you have polarization when you have an erosion of trust that's fertile ground for this and misinformation uh, so I think uh, it's not enough just to do media literacy, although I, that, I it's certainly important, but there are some bigger issues that need to be addressed if we are to sort of uh, cut off uh, the efficiency of mis- and disinformation, but ultimately, as I said, you know, if our a measure of success is sort of a a zero tolerance policy for mis- and disinformation, then I don't think we will ever win any supposed war against fake news uh, unless we adopt extremely draconian measures that we shouldn't want to.
0: That was Jacob Mushangama, founder of Justicia, a think tank in Copenhagen addressing human rights, freedom of speech, and the rule of law. My other guests are Lisa Dittmer, who is Reporters Without Borders advocacy officer in Berlin for Internet Freedom. Juliana von Reppert-Bismarck, founder of a news literacy project called Lie Detectors that is based in Brussels. And Damaso Reyes, multimedia journalist and founder of Clarify Media, which offers news literacy training. Thank you all for being on Common Ground.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you
3: for having us. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and I'm Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next Monday for another episode of Common Ground. Our program is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. You can download all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com.